No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me, on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada. One rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. traditionally Pride Month, but June is also Indigenous History Month. It's an opportunity to learn about unique cultures, traditions, and experiences of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. It's a time to honor the stories, achievements, and resilience of Indigenous peoples who have lived on this land since time immemorial. While in Whitehorse, Yukon last month at a conference, I had the opportunity to speak with folks doing amazing work in rural and remote Canada. One of those incredible people was Lisa Gallant McRobb, and she told me her story. Lisa is a Cree Métis woman who has found her home on the traditional territory of the Kwan Dun First Nation and the Totten Quachin Council. A proud mother of three Clinket children, Lisa has broken through the generational traumas that have plagued her family, and she has bravely blazed her own path. Coming from a life of addiction, abuse, neglect, and violence, Lisa has risen up to become a voice for change, an advocate for our most vulnerable and a powerful force pushing back against the systems that were designed to keep her down. Working with victims of abuse and sexual violence, cooking with her catering company, the many, many hours of volunteer work, and contributing to the various boards and committees she sits on, Lisa has become a powerful force determined to give back to the community she loves, to change her world around her, and to set an example for her children and her children's children to follow. A content and trigger warning that Lisa speaks about her experience with domestic violence, addiction, alcoholism, homelessness, and generational trauma. If you are listening, you may want to take breaks or you may not want to listen at all. Please take care. The National Indian Residential School Crisis Line for former residential school students is 1-866-925-4415. Let's start with your story. How did you get to be doing what you're doing today? So that's, that's a complicated and long story with lots of little avenues and side streets, but um, 
Basically, so right now, full-time, I work as a support worker and acting manager for the Yukon Women's Transition Home Society. On weekends, I work as a support worker and team lead on call for the Sexualized Assault Response Team. And I also moonlight as a caterer, and I own Cedar and Sage Catering, which is a First Nations-based business here in Whitehorse. Um, I don't do a lot of catering. It has to... You know, pique my interest to bring me out to do it, but uh, we got a good name and we, we do quite a bit around town and uh, we do a lot of community work more than big caterings. We do a lot of social justice, I guess, type caterings that speak to me on a different level other than income. Um, I've been in Whitehorse now. This will be my 23rd year. I moved here in August of 2020. I was supposed to be here for six months, <laughs> I guess. Very common story in the Yukon. Mm-hmm. You hear it a lot, especially in customer service fields where people came up for a vacation 20 years ago, and that's basically how it was. My mom lived here for a few years, and I was in a rough spot down south, so I decided I was going to come and check it out for six months, but go back to Vancouver when I was done, and I just put down roots and had my family and raised my children here. So I have three children. They are... Clinkett from Teslin, so they're members of the Teslin Clinkett Council. They're 19, 18, and 16, so two graduating. Yeah, and they're humongous. Um, so how did I get where I am? So I come from a lifetime of lived experience. I never went to school for this or social work or social justice or anything like that. I Everything I know I draw from my own lived experience with myself, my family, and the people in my life. But growing up, I came from a home that was just full of addiction, full of abuse and domestic violence. And, you know, coming as a kid, you don't, you don't understand the trauma that our own parents went through that, you know, got them to a place in their lives that, you know, they're putting their own children through the same traumas. But anyway, I, I grew up in a home that was very, very violent and very, very alcohol-fueled up until I was about 10 when my mom finally left my dad. Uh, when my mom left my dad, after years of sobriety, she started to drink. I was very resentful at you know, 12 years old when my mom started to drink, but looking back, I think I probably would have did the same thing if I survived 18 years of intense abuse, and that's broken bones and stitches and fear and running and yeah so I I don't blame her now for it but yeah she started drinking when I was about 13 12 13 no I guess earlier about 10 is when her and my dad separated at 12 13 she lost custody of me and my brother um they tried to put me in group homes they tried to send me away I was a very rebellious child so that did not work and I took off and I started just kind of being on my own on the streets, back and forth between Alberta and BC. Uh, when I was 14, I had to go live with my sister. Uh, she was also an alcoholic, so it wasn't the best environment for me. And at one point, her ex-husband and his family did an intervention. We were in Coquitlam. She was sent to Surrey to do treatment, and I was sent across the street to live with her ex-boyfriend. Uh, about a month after that, uh, we. I suffered like a very violent home invasion with, you know, we were thrown down, beat up, tied up, guns to our heads, kicked, told we were going to die. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a very traumatic night. And from there I ended up having to go live in the recovery house that my sister was in. So 14 years old, witnessing just detoxing and trauma and, really in-depth deep addictions like I thought I knew addiction just witnessing alcohol in this just it was so much more and thinking back on it I think about like just no environment for a 14 year old but I think that environment is actually what saved my life later on because I always no matter how deep in my addiction I got when I was drinking I never touched hard drugs because I always thought of those women coming in and they were just the scabs and her hair falling out and just you know I would have hep C and AIDS and just so much trauma and I just pictured these women so no matter how deep I was I always pictured those women and I never went far from alcohol so alcohol always became my drug of choice 
I stayed in the recovery house for a while. I moved back to Alberta, stayed with my mom. That fell through. My mom was very abusive, and, you know, very deep into her addiction at that time. I ended up on the streets of Calgary for quite a while. I was in and out of jail. I was selling drugs. I was in a gang. I was kind of all over the place. And the woman, the director of the recovery house I had lived in when I was 14, she became like this almost like second mother to me. And when she found out I was on the streets of Calgary, she drove to Calgary. And she picked me up. She brought me home. And uh, went back to school. I had all my charges from Calgary waived, and I dealt with them. And I was on the honor roll, and I was doing really good. And then I found out I was pregnant. And so I was 17, in school, knocked up. <laughs> so I'm like, what am I going to do? So I became absolutely bound and determined to not become a statistic. And I really buckled down. And I started working toward graduation. I started planning some sort of college or what am I going to do with my life to support this child. And when I was about eight months pregnant, he passed. So I was about 18. He passed. So my life was just gone. And this is what I call the beginning of my villain story, right? That was that moment that I was 18, alone, no family, addicted, just... A mess. So when I turned 19, my mom was already in the Yukon. So she said, well, why don't you come out here and try it out, right? And you stay six months, check it out. So I said, okay. And I came up and it didn't really change my life, I guess, the way I had hoped. I just, just met new people to drink with. I became very, very just lost in, in drinking. And, you know, I had my kids. I have three kids. I lost custody of them when they were about ages, like four, three, and, and one or two. And they lived with their dad for about five years. I don't talk too publicly about my time with my kid's dad just because that's their dad. Mm-hmm. So as much as I would like to tell my story, that part is more just for me because I know my children listen. But yeah, they know that I I suffered quite a bit of abuse at his hands, that my addiction and what happened later on was a result of a lot of that abuse and the abuse I suffered growing up. So for about five years, I was kind of just drunk, working camps, running around, doing my own thing. And I don't know, I just, I met a man that made me want to sober up, right? I didn't want him to, to, uh, no drunk Lisa, mm. right? Because she was, she was the destroyer of everything. So it was my first time actually working on trying to be sober because I didn't want to ruin it with this guy. So fast forward, that guy broke my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely broke my heart. Mm. And I went on a big bender because why be sober? And it broke my leg. And I was sitting in my mom's chair. And I was homeless I didn't have my custody of my children. I didn't even see my kids hardly. I broke promises all the time. I barely showed up. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a home. And I just kept thinking over and over. This thought just entered my head. And I just kept thinking, I have a broken heart, a broken leg, and a broken life. And it just, once it entered, I couldn't get rid of that thought. And I just kept thinking, like, Jesus, my God, how did I get here? So on crutches and everything, brokenhearted, my friend drove me. I went and got my lawyer. I enrolled in school. I had been working as a cook in camp, so I figured I'll go to culinary school. Why not? Right? It's a step. And I just changed. And it wasn't, you know, like a straight line or anything. I fell a few times. I got myself into some trouble a few times after and just rebelling against myself, against the courts, against my abuser, against everybody. And, but I, I kept going, and I kept going. And I went to school, I graduated with honors, and I decided, okay, my goal is to become a Red Seal chef. That is my goal, right? Because I started to realize I was getting a lot of positive attention for quitting drinking, for graduating with honors, like for getting all these opportunities in cooking. And, you know, so I was, I was really feeding off of that positive attention, and it really helped me push through court. Like, while, while I was in school, I was moving I moved twice I was in a full-blown custody battle with my abuser who was just making my life hell and I was still just so focused on making a life so I got my kids back I graduated with honors 
I was working full-time in kitchens, and I started an apprenticeship at the High Country Inn, which is a, a convention center in town. It's closed down now, but at the time, it was where the big caterings were held, so I thought that that's where I needed to be. So I went, and I started my cater, or I started my apprenticeship, and I think it was three months after my mom was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Yeah. So, <laughs> all of a sudden, I'm leaving my apprenticeship. I'm down south with my mom doing treatment. My children are back with their dad. So, like, everything I had worked for is gone. Gone, right? So, I was like, I was so mad. Like, my God. Like, a year and a half, two years of just fighting. I got a house. I got a dog. I got my kids. You know, I got my apprenticeship. I was gone. Just like that. And I was so angry. And I kept having this thought over and over, just like, this is what I sobered up for? Like this? Mm-hmm. I was so mad and so resentful, not at my mom, but just at everything. You know, mm-hmm. fuck the universe. Mm-hmm. Sorry if I'm no, that's to good. say that, right? Yeah. You know? But, you know, he was always, the universe has always been against me. And I just, that was that time where I was just like, you know, F you. And I was getting really mad. And then I kept repeating that over and over, just this is what I sobered up for. And... Then I got mad at myself, and I thought, you know what, yeah, this is exactly what you sobered up for. If you weren't sober, your mom would be dead. That little brother lost an addiction that you drove all the way to Chilliwack for in the car that you bought because you're sober and were able to get your license? Yeah, he wouldn't be here, right? Your children wouldn't see you overcome so yeah you know what get off your pity pot because this is exactly what you sobered up and that that just changed my perspective and it empowered me I guess right it was like yeah you know what this is my duty this is my job this is what I sobered up for and I absolutely would not be able to deal with this if I wasn't sober right drunk Lisa wouldn't have been able to deal with this drunk Lisa would have went on a bender because poor her her mom's sick, right? So it really, really empowered me to be able to move through that. And I, you know, I thought, okay, left my apprenticeship, but that doesn't mean I can't get my red seal. I met my husband while doing that apprenticeship. Hmm. So I, I have a red seal chef in my life I can learn from. I work and was hired by the university that I graduated from in the kitchen. And I'm being mentored by this person that you respect so much. So do I really need that apprenticeship when I have these people already in my life that I can draw from and learn from? And the apprenticeship route was too easy, right? Like, it's just, that's how you do it. That My life has never been like that, so why would I expect that to go that way? So I worked other jobs. I ended up having five casual jobs in kitchens where I could collect my hours and collect and collect and collect so that eventually I could challenge and write my red seal. And I did. Right? And I drew on all those people in my life and all those strengths and all this knowledge that I felt I was being robbed of when I lost that apprenticeship. And I became my red seal. And I was working. So I spent years after my mom passed. Like one of the jobs that I had as a casual was with the homeless shelter. And those are my people. I love them, whether I'm connected through Teslin whether I'm connected through my own life and my own addictions or just through them being clients at the shelter. I'm very connected with our city's vulnerable. And I spent years working with them. And once my mom passed and I was able to have that time to actually work more with one job and not five, I stayed on with them. And I stayed at the shelter and I continued collecting my hours. I wasn't a red seal at the time yet. And um, I started collecting my hours. I started working really hard. I started becoming very sought after I've cooked for royalty in this Mm. town right like when the royals came and like I was very sought after I was very proud of myself and um as I was coming up on being able to challenge my red seal and I was I had those hours I was at 10,000 hours I'd made it um two months before I was due to to uh write my red seal I was t-boned by a speeding fire truck on the highway yeah a month after my mom passed away. Almost a month to the day. Yeah. And a month before my big brother passed away. It was right smack dab in the darkest time of my life. So 
I don't, I like to say that that, that fire truck sent me spinning in a whole new direction in my life. I took about a month off, even though I was all busted up, I'm a hard worker. So I took about a month off work to heal and I went back to work and I really pushed myself because this is what I wanted. I wrote my Red Seal two months later, I became a Red Seal and I continued what I was doing. And as the two years that I remained in the kitchen went by, it was becoming really hard on my body. But I kept pushing through that because to me it was, this is what I'm working toward. This is what it means. This is this body pain that's from the accident, but it comes with the territory. You have to feel this to succeed. You, this is what you needed. And it became this fight within me to become this cook. And it, it started feeling like I wasn't being authentic. And I, I found that I was saying things like, if I ever had to work in a kitchen in a restaurant, I would leave kitchens. And I would become a nurse. And I started realizing that maybe cooking isn't my passion and being in service to others is. Right? And that's why I enjoyed working at the homeless shelter. And I did not enjoy working in restaurants. And then I started feeling, you know, when you're on a plane after hours and you just want to stretch, but you just don't got the room. And you can walk to the bathroom, but it's just not enough. You want to stretch. That's how I felt. But I kept just pushing and pushing, regardless of how I felt. And then this one day, I came home and something had happened to my daughter. It was very traumatic that I didn't know about. And I bragged to everybody that me and my daughter were so close. She told me everything except this. And it started coming out when she started acting out and she started drinking and she started being brought home by RCMP. I really started to recognize this is not normal. This is not a teenager stealing alcohol from someone and drinking in a field to see what it's like. This is someone that something has happened to and she is coping. And I need to figure this out. So once I realized that and I started talking to her and it did come out, I tell you that hit me worse than the fire truck. And I asked her, why didn't you come to me? What happened? And she said, well, I came home and, and you were sleeping. I thought, holy cat, I'm working all these jobs. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I am sore. I'm killing myself. Trying to provide this perfect life for my kids. Because I had it in my brain. I'm breaking the curses. I'm breaking those generational curses. This is what it means to do that. I have to do this hard work. So that my kids can have everything I want. I didn't have. And all the opportunities I didn't have. So I became so obsessed with providing this perfect life that I wasn't even part of it. I had no idea what was going on. And when I realized that, that my daughter was suffering, my oldest wasn't even on the road to graduate, and he was so far in a depression, he wouldn't even come out of his room. And I thought, I'm no better than when I was drinking. The end result is the same. I'm not not here. I'm not present. They're suffering. They're on their own. The only difference is society right now is patting me on the back and telling me I'm doing a fantastic job because I'm working myself to death. And it just, I thought, this just, this isn't worth it. It really is not worth it. So I I thought, okay, well, it's time. I got to do something. I can't do this anymore. But I'm 40 with no education other than a red seal that I just got. I never went to, like, I just, what do I do? Like, I've I've worked waitressing jobs my whole life and factory jobs and low-paying jobs. Like, what can I do at 40 that's going to change my world? And so I saw a a casual position posted within the Yukon Women's Transition Home, and I thought, oh, maybe I can get in there. Because I help everybody in my life anyway. I'm the go-to for all my family, all my friends. I get calls from friends, friends, people I've never met that say, hey, a friend of mine gave me your number and said, maybe you can help me. Because I've survived the court system, the RCMP system, the housing system, the social assistance system. Like I've, all those systems I have navigated very well and on my own. So I tend to be that person that is the go-to for a lot of people in my life. So I thought, well, maybe that's something I can do. Maybe I can take this life experience that I have and put it toward making change in a positive way and setting that that example for my children 
So I, I got on as a casual, and uh, as soon as I got on, they posted a day shift full-time, but it was ter- like a temporary thing, and it was a really big decision, like, should do I leave my full-time cook job for a temporary job in an industry that I'm very new to? Like, it was a, it was a big risk, but I did it, and I thrived in it. And I found that I'm very good at it. And I can relate to a lot of the women that come through the door. And I find that not only do I relate to the women that come through the door, but I grew up in transition homes. They were my second home. I've been in transition homes all across Canada. I can relate to those kids. And I can give a voice to the kids that we often overlook as adults, because we become focused on the mothers and the abuse and the violence, that we forget that these kids have a voice and that they're coping and that the decisions we make in the house affect them. So I find that, you know, I'm, I'm very good at being able to give voices to the women in the house when I'm always the, the staff member that advocates for the, for the women with the staff. And not, I find I advocate more sometimes within than I do without, to bring change within and give voices to those women. And then here I am now, (laughs) attending summits and making change where I can. I'm honored to hold your story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. It's so important to hear. In the darkest moments, What gave you hope? I don't, like, that, it can't always be that bad. You know, like, I grew up in a, in a home that was so volatile and so violent and so not safe. And I think about even the very first emotions that I ever felt in a womb was stress and grief. My mom lost her most important person when she was six months pregnant and she stopped eating. So those emotions is something that I'm, I'm very used to and what got me through is just, I kept thinking, well, this can't be it. And as I grew as a person, I kept thinking, well, I didn't go through it just to go through it. And that there has to be something I can do with this knowledge and this experience to make change. And often when you're in the darkness and the crisis and survival mode, the only thing that gets you through is the survival mode. You don't think of hope. You don't think of tomorrow. And that's something I do that I often say when I'm advocating for women is, when you are in survival mode and you don't know where you're staying tonight, you can't plan tomorrow. I used to think it was a strength. I called it a, a fear of commitment because I wouldn't even sign a lease. I wouldn't make plans for next week because then I would joke, oh, it's a fear of commitment. And it was actually survival mode because I couldn't, it boggled my mind that people could make plans for next week. How do you know you're even going to be alive? Right. So that's just, what, you know, survival mode gets you through. And just the hope that it can't always be that bad. What grounds you now? My children, I think. Yeah. And my daughter. You know, I've seen when she went through that time of her life that was very dark. And I've seen her change and start drinking and become angry and yell showing up at her dad's house yelling at him like just I knew I recognized right away that was that was you know little Lisa right there right and to see my response to her was not anger I didn't ground her for drinking not once I didn't isolate her I didn't tell her she was wrong I recognized trauma and we held ceremony we smudged we healed we came here to KDCC in their sacred space and we healed together and as a result she became hyper focused on 
becoming a better person. She designs murdered and missing Indigenous women t-shirts and jogging pants, and she sells them to raise awareness. She donates part of her profits to local organizations. The rest, she was able to buy her first vehicle, insure it, put it on the road, pay all costs associated with it, and now she's looking at becoming a member of the RCMP one day to work within the murdered and missing Indigenous women sector. So I always tell her that to keep in mind that when you're going to be RCMP, it is about infiltrating and dismantling and not becoming an RCMP. So how do you work, with that in mind, what you said about dismantling, how do you work within these systems when you know that they don't work for Indigenous people? How do you help them navigate that and you, you, have, you have to adhere to a system that was never designed to support you. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Often I call it for what it is. I never sugarcoat it when I talk to women about options and choices and what they are facing. And they know it as much as I do it, right? So we talk about it. And we talk about the barriers that they could face. You know, and it's, it's hard, right, to, to have a woman come in knowing that she's got to face the court system, which is just another, another tool abusers use to control the women and put them in dangerous situations, right? And so it's just about highlighting it and looking at it and talking about it and standing up to it, changing the language whenever you hear it and calling people on it one step at a time and being with them being that support that grounding for them white women like me settler colonial long racism is in our dna as much as we learn and heal we still have biases so how do we support indigenous women as we together heal from intergenerational trauma. It's funny, I was just in Montreal and I was at a conference there and I had a really great conversation with a man who was white and we had, we were, I was wearing my daughter's t-shirt which is the big handprint on the front so he started a conversation between us and that was his last question was how do I support? Because his original question was why all of the focus on Indigenous women, when women of all races go missing? I love that question. I know that a lot of people don't, right? I do, because it's an opportunity to really inform people. So it really, I broke it down for him and told him, you know, it's, he actually had a story about his niece that went missing once. So that was really great because I was able to draw on it and I was able to tell him, you know, when your family went to the RCMP to first report your niece missing, what was the response? Were you believed? Were you treated with dignity? Was a file started? Did they look for her? I said, that's what murdered and missing is about. It's not about our women are more important. It's about the responses that are happening to the women that are going missing and their families, the lack of belief, the lack of dignity, all of that, right? And I said, it's not, it, that's where it is. It's in the responses that the systems give, that society gives, that people give to the women that are going missing. And that made him ask, well, how can I support? And I said, it starts on an individual level. Nobody expects you to rally the troops and be at the front lines with your blowhorn. I said, it starts with, how do you refer to First Nations people and Indigenous women when you're speaking to your children and your grandchildren? Are you walking the talk? Are you setting that example for the people around you? Because when you speak with respect, the people that are around you are going to also speak with respect because they know that you're likely going to call them out if, you, if they don't. 
So I think that that's, for me, the biggest way to show solidarity and to stand with Indigenous women is to break it down on an individual level and practice what you preach. How are you speaking in your home life? Not when you're at work and you're surrounded by your peers. When you know you have to be professional, it's when you're at home with your family, kicking back. It's when you're walking down the street and you see that homeless person, the look in your eye. You don't even have to say anything. The people around you are going to recognize the look in your eye. Is it compassion or contempt? And that's how I feel everybody can make that change. It's just changing their everyday actions and the language that they use. You've used the word dignity, and it's so important. What does dignity mean when it comes to, like you said, seeing a homeless person or an indigenous person in your social group? What does dignity mean? I think dignity has so many different definitions depending on who you talk to. But for me, it's just upholding that person, who they are, where they are right now, and knowing that I can accept them that way. I have no expectation. I have no ulterior motive. And that I'm not one to say you're good enough the way you are, right? Because... Somebody in the throes of addiction does not want to hear I'm good like this because they know they're not. So I'll never say that, but just acceptance and understanding and lifting them up, not looking down on them and understanding that their life is so complex. It's so much more than another drunk or another addict or another missing woman. It's generations and generations that brought us here to this place and that's why I loved working at the homeless shelter because we see like for most people we see weakness there we see addiction there we see shame and heartbreak but I see so much strength because I think while a lot of people may be in crisis and may be broken these people that are at the homeless shelter are heads on the strongest people I ever met. Because what they've been through would probably kill me and would probably kill half the people I know. And somehow they survived. And they're still here. And they're still walking. And they're still telling their story. And to me, like, that's just, that's strength. I think there's an aspect of dehumanization that a lot of people, without realizing the stigma that they have ingrained. It's subconscious. It's everywhere. When I was talking with that man in Montreal, one of the things that I noticed in Montreal is a beautiful city. It's very colonial. And it's very Catholic. I I went there with my beaded earrings and my handprint T-shirt. I was walking around, and right away I noticed, you know, lack of carvings, lack of art, lack of any First Nations culture when I first got there. And I was walking through old Montreal and I came across Notre Dame and across the street from Notre Dame was like this little city park, right? And I have a statue in the middle and people singing. It was the first little square that I came across. So I went to the center and I was looking at this statue. And as I was looking at it and I came closer and I started really examining it, you know, it was a plaque with a white man shooting a native man in the throat and a sculpture of a colonial woman with a little First Nations kid in a headlock. And I was so blown away that this, 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 what? <laughs> I, I couldn't even put it into words. You know, I, I made a post about it on Facebook and I actively walked around it and frowned <laughs> in displeasure. <laughs> and so when me and that man were talking about change and stuff and I mentioned to him, I said, you know, people on a person level, for the most part, are good people. But when you're surrounded by this every day, you may say that you're on the side of First Nations or that you're not racist or you're not this or whatever. But when you're surrounded by those images and that message every day, that's what you walk by. 
you can't tell me that it's not going to you know, have some sort of influence on the way you see the world and the First Nations people. Well, and the effect, the effect that it has on you yeah. as, as a First Nations person. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's hard for me because I'm Cree Métis and I come from a very Catholic background. So I struggle with that. In ex- you know, I'm very, no problem accepting my First Nations side, struggle with the French and Catholic side. Because I know, you know, it's, I, I walk this middle ground constant. Is ceremony part of your everyday life now with your family? Yes. Yes. What does it bring you? Peace. Grounding. It brings us together. You know, like I grew up, I have a very different, like we, we talk about intergenerational trauma and the, and the effects that it had on First Nations families. Um, ours had a very different effect. So I didn't even know my family went to residential school until very recently. Uh, when actually when the 751 bodies were found at Mary Belle, that, that that's my family's school. My mom's twin sister and her older brother are among those bodies. But I never knew, like I grew up with stories about the strict nuns. And I remember my mom, she would make like this hand motion in a square around her face to describe the haircuts, these square haircuts she would talk about, and the horse hair in the hands and the whips. And I just always thought they just went to real strict Catholic school. Like it never occurred to me that that was a residential school. And I grew up in a home that like my grandma, my cook up, she did not like First Nations people. So it, was, it wasn't so much she didn't like them, but they weren't so welcome. Like my mom would tell stories about if she brought home a First Nations friend, they waited outside. If they brought home a white friend, the white friend was very much welcomed into the home. My grandma pushed her daughters to marry white men. And when her grandkids were born, when they had white skin, she was very, very happy. So I grew up with this notion that my family was racist. And I couldn't figure out why my auntie wouldn't, wouldn't walk past a First Nations man when she's just as brown. Like, what is going on? And I just, it seemed normal to me, but it was, seemed odd that my family was so racist. So fast forward to just a couple of years ago when all these bodies were being found and these children were being discovered, I was watching a show called We Were Children, and it was on Netflix. And I'm watching this show, and it's in southern Saskatchewan. And I've had this thought, like, ah, where my family's from. And I continue to watch it. And they're parading the kids into the classroom, and they have these little square haircuts. And I thought, huh, kind of like my mom used to have. Still not cluing in until there's a part of that show where this little boy is lipping off to the nun. And he has to get up, and he puts his hands out to get the whip. And holy man, did my world crash. And that's when I realized, oh my God, my family went to residential school. So then I started calling my aunties that were still alive, and I started asking questions, and I found out that, yeah, they did go to Maryville. And it was about a week after I found out that those bodies were discovered. So it was very close And it started really making sense to me. And I started really thinking about what it would have been like for my grandma to raise children in that time. And I started thinking it was probably very dangerous to be a First Nations mother and First Nations children. And it probably meant to my grandma that if you're First Nations, that means they're going to come and take your children. So to protect yourself, you are not First Nations. You marry white, and you have white grandbabies. So I really started questioning this belief that my family was racist. Were they racist? Or was that my grandma's attempt to protect her children? I can't ask her, but it's something I noodle quite often. In rural and remote communities, 
most of them are very white. What is your message to them about their responsibility to learn about, pay attention to, and carry out the TRC calls to action? Hmm. So in rural communities, as First Nations people or as white settlers? White settlers first, then First Nations people. I think that for white settlers, first and foremost, is just acknowledging where you are and whose land you're on. Always. First and foremost, take the time to, to learn about the culture that you're surrounded by. And again, it's, it, to me, it starts on an individual level. And that's how you spread change, is by walking that talk and learning about the cultures that are around you, learning about what happens specific in that area. Because we can have a general knowledge of residential school. We can have a general knowledge of colonialism. But it's very different in every community, and in every province, and in every territory. And it's a very different experience. And so I think that just taking that time to learn in every place and never thinking that you know is a really good place to start. And what about First Nations people? I think First Nations people have made leaps and bounds in, in just being recognized. You know, it wasn't too long ago that we didn't believe survivors. Right, and they've blown the lid off of everything, and we now know that they're telling the truth. And I think that they're doing such great work in showing the rest of us that there is wisdom in elders, because I think Western culture does not value elders and our seniors the way that First Nations people do, and that there's knowledge in our youth. Right? Because, again, Western cultures don't put a lot into our youth. Right? What do you know? You're young. Wait till you grow up. You don't even know what problems are. This is what we tell our youth. Whereas First Nations cultures bring the youth to the table and let them have that voice. I think that we could learn a lot. Right? Like, I think First Nations culture is almost exact opposite of Western culture. They value matriarchy and women. And women have voices and power. Right? Women lead the families. Right, they value their elders and their seniors, their youth, right? It's just this community. And I think that continuing to walk that talk. The more I learn about Indigenous culture, the more I know that, that they had it right all along. And if white people could just figure that out, you don't make money in inclusion. There's no money to be made when everybody's at the table and has that equal voice. But what about relationships over money? Yeah. I think once we learn to value relationships over money, you know, we'll see great change in our Western cultures. Right? Like... I know that I see a lot of that with First Nations. I myself refuse, like I, I do a lot of beading and a lot of sewing, and I refuse to sell my work. But I absolutely will trade and barter. And the people that I trade with, I have built beautiful relationships with that I never thought I would have, simply because we traded our work. And we got to learn and build, and I get to build my community, I get to build my knowledge, I get to do all sorts of stuff. And that's more valuable. What's your hope for the future? You know, we, like, we talk about ending gender-based violence. We talk about ending racism. Like, that's everybody's hope. But I think that we have a lot of work to do. I think that... And it's not a popular opinion, but I think that what we tend to do is when we highlight 
and bring one group up, we put another group down. So I always am the first to say we never get rid of hate, we just move it. So one, one oppressed group that everybody hates on finds power and comes up. The hate turns to the people that were oppressing, right? And I always say the worst person to be right now is a middle-class white Christian man. Right? Like you it's do, true. You, the moment he even opens his mouth, it is your opinion does not matter. I'm not saying it does, and I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying that we have to be careful when we're ending one form of violence and one form of hate that we're not just turning it on another. So that's what my hope is, is that we recognize as society, because it's happened so much, right, over and over, that we just put the hate somewhere else and we uplift one, one group and hate on the other group. And then we'll hate on them for 100 years, and then that group will rise, and then we'll hate on that group. Do you think that we will see systems come apart in our lifetime? Yes. I don't think we'll see them built in our lifetime. I think we are laying the foundation to rebuild those systems. But I think it's our children and our grandchildren that are going to rebuild. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you. To have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for your authenticity, uh, your resilience, and your beauty. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware, First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection into the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 